I think it would be a tragedy for all the families because I think what this could do, what this bill could do is restrict the educational options open to home educators. They talk about support, but actually this level of scrutiny doesn't support anyone. It would limit the opportunities of home educated young people enormously if we weren't able to set up these part-time learning settings where children can go. And I think what you'll see happening is that families will start to say things like, well, we can't go out between nine and four because we're worried that someone's going to report us. So it will it could seriously restrict what young people can do. I think one of the things is 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 um implications for schools who've not uh, perhaps not clocked anything. Because for instance, there'll be more kids being pushed onto uh the school role. They don't want to be there. And it's going to get worse if this bill becomes an act and it doesn't get amended. It will definitely become worse for schools. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Greetings, fellow passengers of Spaceship Earth. This week, I learned through Twitter that our planet is travelling through the cosmos at 370 kilometres a second, which is rather alarming, isn't it? But we are where we are, and thankfully you can hardly tell, so we can safely get back to talking about education reform. As the keen beans among you may have noticed, recent episodes of this podcast have been released a little farther apart than usual. That's because I've been immersed in writing about my latest obsession, implementation science, and I will be announcing exciting news on that front in the coming weeks. But you may be pleased to hear that I have been recording podcasts, even if I haven't had time to edit and release them. So to make up for lost time, I plan to end season two of the podcast by releasing one episode a week for the next seven weeks or so. This will include my recent conversations with Kate, Barry and Elaine Long about implementation science, Harley Richardson on the liberating power of education, the MP Emma Hardy about Oracy, and in particular the Oracy all-party parliamentary group that she set up and led, which published an excellent report recently, Peter Gray about his fantastic book Freedom to Learn, among other things, Johnny Hunt about his sensational book Sex Ed for Grown-Ups, a conversation that fundamentally shifted my thinking in a number of important ways, and I have further episodes lined up with Mina Wood about transforming the secondary curriculum, Martin Robinson about his book Curriculum, Athena versus the Machine, and I'll also be speaking with Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore later in the summer, co-author of The Learning Brain with Uta Frith, and the sole author of Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain, which will get season three off to a roaring start. So, lots to come. Today's episode is the brainchild of Antipodean friend of the podcast, Peter Gartside, Peter suggested that the school's bill currently going through the English Parliament presents a potentially significant challenge for people seeking to rethink education. Indeed, if it goes through largely unamended, it looks like it will be a hugely retrograde step in many alarming ways, all of which we will get into shortly. And so, with apologies to international listeners, this episode has a strongly Anglo-centric flavour. Before we get into it, a quick mention, if I may, for the Rethinking Education Conference taking place later this year. Everyone is affected by education in some way, but education conferences are often not hugely representative of the wider world. In particular, the voices of young people, parents and carers, and classroom practitioners are often overlooked and unheard. 
And so, building on the momentum of this podcast and the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the now 600-strong, thriving online community that's grown up alongside this podcast, later this year we're putting on a real-life, face-to-face Rethinking Education conference. It's called Let's Get Together, and it will be at the beautiful Addy and Stanhope School in central London on Saturday the 17th of September. But there will also be an online element so people can contribute and participate from anywhere in the world. As far as I'm aware, this conference will be the first of its kind. We aim to attract roughly equal numbers from each of the following five groups and to ensure that as far as possible, these groups are equally represented on the platforms mainstream educators, alternative educators, children and young people, parents and carers, and then there's a fifth sort of miscellaneous group of researchers, policy makers, strange people like me. This will be an opportunity for people from all walks of life to come together, to have your voice heard, to learn from other people's perspectives, and to figure out how we might create an education system that works for all young people. Due to overwhelming demand, we've brought the speaker application deadline forward to June the 12th to give us time to process them all, but there is still time to apply. If you would like to take part, please consider putting in an application to present or run a workshop, and if you know someone else who you think might be interested, please give them a gentle or even quite a firm nudge. You'll find a link to the speaker application form in the show notes. We're especially keen to hear from classroom practitioners young people and parents and carers. We'd also love to receive more applications from a diverse range of people with regard to race and ethnicity, disability, neurodiversity and gender identity. Confirmed speakers to date include Sir Tim Brighouse, the co-author of About Our Schools with Mick Waters, who will also be at the conference, Yumna Hussain, the youth MP for Birmingham and the author of Struggles of War, which she wrote when she was in year eight, like you do, Dr. Deborah Kidd, author of A Curriculum of Hope, among many other brilliant things. Professor Neil Mercer, my former PhD supervisor, who's an author of a brilliant book called Interthinking, which is remains ahead of its time. Mina Wood, author of Secondary Curriculum Transformed. Dr. Kulvan Atwal, the author of The Thinking School and a head teacher of two schools. It will also feature all three of today's guests on the podcast, Professor Ian Cunningham, Dr. Naomi Fisher and Ellie Costello. And so there's something for all the family, literally. So do join us. We are running a 20% discount for friends of the Rethinking Education podcast. You just need to enter the promo code REPOD20, all lowercase, and you need to look for the small blue font at the top of the screen when you go to the tickets page. We're also running a further 20% early bird offer that will expire soon. And so if you get in there quick, you'll receive an £18 discount in total off the full price, which will be £50. We're also offering a hardship quota of free tickets for young people, should you or they require it. The event will be 100% accessible by wheelchair and any proceeds will be donated to educational charities. If you're happy to, I would really appreciate if you would take a few seconds to share the social media links in the show notes, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, choose your poison or even all of them. There's also an awesome video trailer that you'll again find linked in the show notes. Thank you so much. Any help that you can offer in helping spread the word about this first Rethinking Education conference will be greatly appreciated. Okay. Back to today's episode. Here to discuss the school's bill with me are three former guests of the Rethinking Education podcast, 
Ian Cunningham, Naomi Fisher, and Ellie Costello. I won't introduce them now because they will do so in their own words a few moments from now. Various pieces of research are mentioned throughout this podcast. You'll find links to all of these studies in the show notes, along with a petition for you to sign should you feel so moved, as well as a link to a website where you can write to your MP or a member of the House of Lords, a strangely gendered piece of language that still seems to be with us for some reason. Anyway, without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent conversation, which we recorded just this morning with Ian, Naomi and Ellie. I hope you enjoy this show, even if it is about something that is really quite profoundly concerning. Ian Cunningham and Naomi Fisher, welcome back to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, two two alumni of the of the podcast, if that's not too too grand a term. Um, in case anyone isn't familiar with you or your work, would you please just in- introduce yourselves briefly? Uh, Ian, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I I founded and and chair uh, the governors of SML College, South Island College, in Sussex on the coast, um, and I've also do work with organisations. Um, just at the moment, I'm working with Manchester United's Academy. Um, on development there and uh, write and do other stuff. Right. I hope that's enough. Thank you. And we're all connected, it seems, through through SMLC, through mm. the Self-Managed Learning College that you mentioned, because I used to work there. And Naomi, uh, you send your children there, don't you? Yeah, Naomi, could you introduce yourself, please? Yes. Hello, I'm Naomi Fisher. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've authored a book called Changing Our, Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning, which is about how children can learn in a much more autonomous way than often happens. And I've got two children or growing into teenagers who have never been to conventional school, who are home educated and now are still home educated, attending part time learning setting, which is SMLC. Um, And I'm very interested in this whole area. I also work with lots of families and children as a clinical psychologist who are very who are really finding school very difficult or who are coming out of school. Yes, thank you. And so you're wearing possibly both hats today, your, your clinical psychologist hat and your parent of children in alternative provision hat. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will hopefully be, for the benefit of listeners, we'll hopefully be joined by Ellie Costello and uh, by the magic of audio cinema, whatever it is that's happening here, Ellie Costello is now with us. Ellie, could you please, for the benefit of listeners, uh, just briefly introduce yourself and the work that you do at SquarePeg? Yeah, so I'm Ellie. I'm director for a community interest company, Social Impact Organisation, called Square Peg. We work to raise awareness um, and lobby and try to affect change, really, on behalf of all of the families whose children are struggling to attend or face barriers to attendance. Um, And our heartlands within that really is um, persistent absence, which is the hot topic at the moment. But we do think about truancy although it's not a term we like, um, and uh, excluded children, all square pegs struggling to access the system for whatever reason, of which there are many. Indeed, square pegs in round holes, rather rigid holes, um, which we expect lots of young people to, to slot into. Okay, so Ian, please could you provide a, like a, just a general backdrop for the benefit of listeners who might not be aware of the schools bill or what's happening. What's, what is the schools bill? What's happening here? Uh, schools bill was introduced in the House of Lords uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so on 
terms of parliamentary procedure, you have a first reading, then a second reading, and it's now what's called a committee stage. Though actually, as I understand in the Lords, it just isn't really a committee, it's done in the full house. So, so at the moment it's being discussed and there've been various amendments suggested to this bill. Um, the bill is, is partly about schools in the sense that there's a whole load of stuff about um, academies in it. But I think the issue for many people, and it's fitting with, with Naomi and Elliot and my concerns, is that there's a whole lot of stuff about uh, supposed uh, children missing education and a whole lot of uh, misinformation that's been put out and which is also in, in, in a sense encapsulates in the bill by the, the notion that there are lots of problems. Um, in the 1996 Act, so what this bill is doing is changing previous Acts of Parliament and in the 1996 Act uh, local authorities were instructed to know about home educated children. Um, so already there is a law that says uh, local authorities work with children who are technically called home educated, but though this is just a government term, there's no, nowhere in law is, is the word home education appear. Um, what the law says is that children must go to school or otherwise, and the law doesn't say otherwise is inferior. In other words, there's two options with equal status. Um, one is the child goes to school and the other is they do something else. And elective home education has become the term that has been attached to, to something else. So with our college, um, we work in the mornings only five days a week, and, but technically all the parents, as far as the local authorities are concerned, are home educating. And obviously they do that in the hours that the children are not with us. Uh, and previously there have been various rules about that, which th th this bill plans to scrap. So there's been a kind of invented panic in the media by government and by people with a vested interest um, to generate a, a sense that, wait a minute, there's lots of problems. There's, uh, uh, it's not just the pandemic, there's a whole load of issues with lots of children. And just to give you one precise example, um, that the head of Ofsted, um, Amanda Spielman, alleged that there was a six-year-old boy who was killed uh, recently, uh, and Lolito Jones, and a lot of the press about that. And she, in a speech, said, he was home educated. Now it's a lie, he wasn't home educated. What was, he wasn't in school, he was on a school role, it just happened not to be in school. And of course he was known to the authorities anyway, social workers had visited the house two months before, the grandparents had informed that there was a problem uh, and nothing had happened. But what is, it's convenient I think for this education establishment and the social work establishment to put the blame somewhere else and they're trying to put the blame on home education which is absolutely appalling. So this bill is appalling for all sorts of reasons. It's quite complex and there are lots of different sections, but hopefully that's enough as a starter to say, people should pay attention to this because it's about how the sex of state education, this individual can grab power over people's lives, over parents and children's lives. Right, thank you. Uh, Ellie, would you like to add anything to that as a sort of as a general introduction to this bill? Yeah, I mean, I think it absolutely, as Ian concluded there, it is, does seem to be a power grab. And the initial first bill that went through was incredibly sparse in its detail, but also was very succinct in, 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 in what it was aiming to do. I think in terms of parents on the ground, I think I'd like to speak to ordinary parents whose children aren't home educated and perhaps are OK in school. 
um, you know, I'll get on to the, those that aren't in school and the measures that are proposed in the bill that are going to tightly lace the system even more. But in terms of just regular families, um, I'd like to ask them how comfortable they are that the Secretary of State has um, under this bill is um, uh, absolutely grabbing um, an enormous amount of power. Generally, five ex-Secretary of States have come out and said that it's a flagrant power grab and that he will not have any kind of... Um, uh, you know, due regard to anyone. So there is no parliamentary scrutiny in the proposals that he's talking about. And what, they, what they're saying throughout the bill is that um, the government, the Department for Education, can just issue whatever guidance it likes without scrutiny. And what that means, or regulation, and what that means is, arguably, to use an extreme example, the Secretary of State could uh, issue guidance that said that all children... 100% of all children, um, you know, uh, on school role had to be in seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And there would be no, in terms of attendance, so for focusing on attendance, and there would be no, no um, scrutiny on that. And, and in the guidance itself, this, I was speaking to a, a minister yesterday, schools in guidance are asked to have due regard to the guidance. Now, what school won't have due regard to? To the guidance so all schools try to follow the guidance and if they don't they get in trouble there's offset there's all sorts of um uh backup so that's one and then the other area is on our children's data the capture of our children's data that's being proposed under the live attendance tracker and how that will be shared in the guidance so there's guidance that's already published now that refers to this bill with an intention of coming in in 2023 and the guidance around data says, for example, the ident personal identi personally identifiable pupil attendance data will be tracked live in real time, that's one issue, and shared amongst all agencies, but will be held after the age of the child is after the age of 18 for 66 years and shared with all agencies. So that means that a, a child from birth to 80 because the pupil number is allegedly going to be signed at birth, apparently, although why we can't use any other number. But anyway, don't get me started. There's so many nuances. Um, uh, it is, and my son, who's 16, has said, I don't want my data held and shared for 66 years. You know, where's the opt-out on that? And there isn't one. So I think just in terms of just thinking about the, 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 the measures that are seemingly so simple, let's improve attendance, let's safeguard children, let's tighten up on, on illegal schools. It sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? But, but, but it's understanding that. Yeah, thank you. There's, there's such a lot going on there. And the, the, the thing that you mentioned about data in particular is, is very concerning. So let's just try to, you know, that idea of the steel man, right, where you try to sort of to, to put up the argument against the thing that you're concerned about. So like, what is the thinking? I mean, the, 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 the attendance figures have, have taken a huge hit, haven't they? And it's a, the attendance is a lot lower post pandemic than it was pre pandemic. It seems that lots of young people didn't go back after the pandemic. And so obviously ministers are naturally going to be concerned about that. And so is there some sort of good faith thing here? We're, we're framing this as a power grab and that might be true, but is there also like a good faith intention to try to 
to get kids back in school because we think that they should be back in school and also potentially with regard to specific examples like the one that you mentioned Ian where there are people who've been home educated who've been sort of off the radar and bad things have happened and people want there to be more accountability is that a fair is there at least a grain of that in in this mix uh, do you want to come in here Naomi the, the good faith kind of way of thinking about it is that, like so many people in society, unfortunately, people in government who are writing these papers, they assume that home education is less good than school and that it is some in some way a safeguarding problem. So this is a really and, and they also equate a schooling family who don't send their child to school for some reason, perhaps because they're being abusive with a home educating family. So everything gets put in the same bucket. And there's a kind of assumption that parents aren't doing the best for their children, that they are keeping out their, their children out of school for all sorts of spurious reasons and that these are children missing in education. And this runs through everything. I've, I had a letter from our local council, children missing in education. We've heard that your children are not attending school. That's the kind of basic stance, which is so far from the truth for most of these children, but certainly for my children. And that, But there's always this assumption that school is where education really takes place and the rest of it isn't really education. And I think that runs through this bill. It's very punitive. I was amazed when I read it at just how punitive it is. It's basically got an almost an assumption of guilt about home educating parents, that they need to be controlled, they need to be showing that they're providing a good enough education. It, on a really micro level, you know, they need to be, there's all things about, yeah, Ian. Not to interrupt you, but, um, th 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 that, whole issue is, is is a kernel of it it is actually saying that parents and children can't be trusted and we we, we formed an association which includes academics and uh, and people with experience in this field and for instance John Merritt at Exeter's done the the research on a serious case reviews where uh, for instance found that children where there was a serious case of something happening was coded as home education in error um, and about 50 percent of the cases that were supposedly against home education were coded in error. They were, in other words, the child's on the school roll. Uh, another case, uh, Anne Longfield, a former children's commission, has got a group that's working on, on the same kind of issues. And as it made, uh, you know, alleged again that um, oh, a 14 year old boy was, was murdered uh, and that this was because he was out of, out of school, home educated. And again, it's not true. He was, he was actually arrested by the police uh, and the fact that the police and the home, home uh, the, the, the local authority didn't communicate, you know, it wasn't picked up, but he was known to the authorities. And then he, when he got murdered, of course, there were, you know, the authorities go, oh, it was home education when the, the boy was just excluded from school. So we're getting this narrative all the time and all these lies put out to people protect the system. And, and the notion that, you know, there's all this abuse at home and then schools are safe places. Well, there's more than a million children every year bullied in schools in the UK, more than a million uh, and sexually abused. And you can add those numbers onto it. You get closer to one and a half million, maybe two million. The, the, the government figures underestimate. But I'm taking the government figures, own figures of the level of bullying. And all schools are not safe basically <laughs> and many parents and if the parents have a legal obligation it's the, it's the parents in law are responsible for a child's education not the secretary of state um, and not the school the parents must ensure that the child has a suitable education in terms of age aptitude ability and any special needs and where a school is failing I and mean, we just uh, locally 
uh, it's a school you would know, I mean, mention it, Baca, uh, Brighton Oldridge Community Academy, uh, has, has failed its Ofsted on the basis that there is so much violence and so much sexual abuse that both parents and children say the school is not safe. So if you are a parent with a child there, and the law says that you must uh, ensure that your child has a suitable education, then why wouldn't you take the child out of school when it is clearly not a safe place? Ofsted have said it's not a safe place. Sexual abuse and violence are rife within the school. And therefore, why wouldn't parents decide to home educate, which is seen as the other option. In fact, it isn't because the other option is to use various resources for learning. I mean, home education is a misnomer because actually children out of school use all sorts of resources and they don't sit at home in, uh, and, and learn behind the desk. They're out going to museums and art galleries and uh, etc. And the, they use places like ours, which is another part of the bill, trying to close down places like ours so that you reduce the level of support for home educating parents, therefore forcing parents to send the children back to school, even though the child doesn't want to be there. Yeah, thank you. So, so just on this on this second question that I have, really, which is really about the concerns, we've heard a few of them. Is there anything else that you would, that, that hasn't been discussed yet in terms of like why are people so concerned about this bill? Yeah. So, so the other one I was just going to add in is is the notion that that we can safeguard children if they're at school, which which um, Ian and Naomi have talked about, but also there is the assurance in the measures that are being proposed that we are um, effectively tracking, we can prevent harm. We can't, we've got registers at the moment that, that, don't, that don't do that. Um, and also the notion that we can predict risk. So in other words, if we're, if we're, if we're surveilling everybody, then we can confidently predict. It's almost if you sort of equate it to terrorism surveillance. When it comes to safeguarding um, and outcomes for X child in X circumstances, in um, the following year or five years or 10 years or 20 years, this is the argument about keeping the data for 66 years, you cannot robustly and confidently predict risk. Eileen Monroe's work has done that. She's published a paper. It's been widely debunked within social work that the uh, comfortable assurance that you can predict risk if you track people and that they will end up from point A to point B is it has been widely debunked. So that's another sort of claim that's made about the prediction and the assurance that we can prevent harm. We can't prevent harm. What we can do is we can try to reduce the, um, the incidence of harm by addressing things like welfare, poverty, social care, insecure housing, um, supporting parents who have different cultural backgrounds and English isn't their same language, supporting families who are um, fleeing domestic violence. There is so many reasons, um, supporting families to access mental health care. So many reasons why a family cannot access education. And, and this is a very blunt instrument in order to do it. So the argument that, that school safeguards, as Ian said, they don't. Lots of children find school a very um, alarming and, you know, um, traumatizing and, and abusive environment. Um, and we can't safeguard. Now, just finally, the final point that's coming out under the social care review is this idea that schools become corporate parents. So this is another call for ordinary parents. So what's happening is um, corporate parents traditionally is, is the state as a parent to a child that doesn't have um, suitable parents in place or, or, or is you know, um, 
placed into care for lots and lots of reasons, including those at risk of harm and neglect. Corporate parenting means that the state has authority to make decisions over that child. When it comes to, for example, a child's ability to attend, what we're seeing is a complete disarming of a family's voice in the opinion over whether their child is fit to attend any setting. And this is really, really worrying. And then that corporate parenting lens is being shone onto home educators because it's almost like this is where this distrust comes in, where, well, we just need to check what have you got to hide? You know, so therefore we start getting into quite sticky territory and a breach of, you know, human rights, the right, you know, right to privacy in your home and all sorts. Um, but also parental rights, the, the autonomy and authority to be trusted to care and raise your child as you see fit and to decide if they are fit to attend any setting in or out of education. Um, finally, the other, the other argument that's going around um, that I know everyone is really alarmed about is defining um, what suitable education is. And what we have in the bill is a real um, thread where you can see the sort of corporate parenting and the assessment and um, decision making on what is suitable and then how that is all very laced, um, tightly laced around attendance. Similarly, whether or not the child is fit to attend, are they suitably fit to attend? And that the corporate parenting structure, which the Children's Commissioner has suggested, bringing together policing, social care, education. Um, I'm not sure if health are there, actually. Um, they may be. Um, uh, all around one table. So they're going to be creating boards in each area which looks at local area data where everyone's coming together. Again, you know, there's elements of that that should be working already and isn't. So how does the formation of a new board make any difference whatsoever? Right, thank you. Ian, do you wanna come in there? Yeah, um, so you're asking about the other concerns. The big one that uh, so-called elective home educators are concerned about is the register. So the idea is a compulsory register for parents where the child is, is not in a, a school that is a recognised school. Um, and what the bill says is that uh, local authority would get the names, first of all, of both parents. So one of the issues being raised is you've got uh, a mother with child with an abusive partner. She moves away, uh, does not wish for her address to be known to her partner, but which the, the partner could find out because both, both parents have to be on the register. Um, secondly, the, the bill says the local authority can put anything they like on this register, literally anything. And there are 152 local authorities in the country, so there'll be 152 registers, all of which will be recording different things, uh, and there'll be chaos. Uh, th there was an attempt a few years back with something called Contact Point, where they tried to record all children, and it failed. Uh, failed because data entry was not uh, didn't work, and also because it was recognised it was a paedophile's handbook, uh, which this new system will be. Uh, and if you look at the evidence on grooming, it isn't just through the internet. The, 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 okay, the one that uh, hits the headlines is sexual grooming, where clearly uh, someone who is able to find out if, for instance, a young person is seen as vulnerable, uh, then they're easier to obviously um, attempt to groom. But the other side of it, where there's more evidence that uh, drug gangs uh, want vulnerable young people for county lines. 
uh, there's some academic research showing that that's been on the increase. And again, the register will be marvelous. And, and we know that these aren't safe. The notion that this is going to be safe and encrypted and all the rest of it is nonsense because there's been data leaks forever. Um, and OK, it all gets better and better each year. But we know, um, you know, if people can hack into um, government secret facilities, then uh, one of these 152 registers will be a doddle uh, because the local authorities will do whatever they want with these registers. They will be able to share them as they wished. Uh, and there's not uh, and in the bill, it says it will be they will shared. Um, because they're saying, oh, well, a person may move and therefore we have to share it with another party. Um, the second biggie is obviously affecting places like ours, the illegal schools bit. The, the, the bill gives uh, Ofsted new powers, uh, the, some of which they already use anyway. They break the law all the time. They did when they came and inspected us, like I was uh uh interviewed under caution when i should have uh, been allowed to have a solicitor i was uh filmed on a body camera without being told that that was happening so already ofsted break police rules because they're not equipped to do this but the thing that's changing in the new bill is 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 that ofsted will have a uh, right of entry to persons homes it's actually built in and it actually explains how that will happen and they will have exactly the same rights as police uh, no difference. Uh, so you can imagine that uh, uh, Ofsted will go, oh, this is maybe an illegal school being run. I mean, obviously, if a mother has six children and they're being educated at home, technically that's an illegal school. Um, or if you've got an, uh, a one child with an EHCP, education healthcare plan, equals a school. So that for uh, uh, what they're planning to do, uh, which is in early documentation, there was a, in, um, a consultation, which we never heard about, of independent educational institutions. And within that, the government's saying, well, there's people like us, we're gaming the system because currently the rule is that if you do more than 18 hours with a child, they should be registered. And that seems fair enough. And there's lots of small learning communities like ours. They want to get rid of that. And when Ofsted, the last, we've had two Ofsted visits, by the way, they're trying to intimidate us and close us down. But the last time they were saying this, our, our rule is going to go and we will have the right to just say, we think this is an illegal school and therefore you'll be prosecuted. Uh, now, the fact that they've done nearly 900 visits in five years and only prosecuted six people in, in now six years uh, shows that there isn't a problem of illegal schools because illegal schools was where, um, you know, children are sitting in a place, learning a curriculum, being taught uh, uh, and being there for perhaps, you know, a whole week. So, so this, these two are intertwined in the sense of, therefore, it will reduce the ability for home educating parents to use part time facilities that, that provide a support for them educating their own child. And just quickly before you come in, Naomi, on this illegal thing, on this illegal schools thing, is this partly done under the umbrella of uh, like, uh, yeah, illegal religious schools and things like madrasas? And is this part of the prevent strategy? Yeah. I don't know who, who wants to pick that up. Yes, and the ones that are being uh, prosecuted have been Muslim schools. A lot of this goes back to the Home Office as well. If you look at the the, 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 the desire for 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 more surveillance and more um, uh, intervention and more sharing of data. It goes back to the Home Office, um, illegal schools being, you know, sort of in that umbrella in terms of extremism and radicalization. Uh, do you want to come in, Naomi? 
Yes, there was just a couple of things I wanted to pick up on from what both Ellie and Ian have said. But one of them was that there's a whole, there's a kind of mindset running through this of these children are ghost children or invisible, that we need to have more surveillance of these children um, because they're at risk. That's kind of the basic mindset. But when they've, um, Education Otherwise have done uh, freedom of information requests where they've looked at who is referred to social services, what happens to those children. And they have found that actually home educated children are more visible than other children in the sense that they are over referred, massively over referred to social services. But once they're referred, the rate of child protection plans being put in place is, is exactly the same or lower than schooled children. In some local authorities, 25% of home educated children are referred to social services not because there's actually things going on but because there's an assumption in people's minds home education's a risk we need to survey these kids and that really is a very unhelpful thing for the home educating community in the sense that it, it puts all sorts of barriers in, in place from people accessing support because they're worried that they're going to be referred and they're also worried that the local authority if they come to look at the education their children will be receiving are not qualified to actually assess a home education because home education can look very different to education at school. And that's a fundamental element of why it's effective because I think people don't have a good image in their heads of what of all these, who all these kids are. You know, a lot of these children have been in school, their parents have tried to get them to school. It really hasn't worked for them. And their parents are making other good choices for them. And this really assumes that the reason children aren't in school is because their parents aren't pushing them hard enough or that their parents need to be more motivated to force them into school. And if you look at the, the punitive elements of the bill, the school attendance orders, this is the assumption that we have to force people in. Right. Thank you. Um, Ellie, do you want to come in there? Yeah, so it was just sort of picking up on what Naomi was saying of Professor Andy Bilson's research on, on, on the disproportionately high child protection and referrals that are going on. Um, um, obviously, you know, she's covered the home education side of things really well. We also see a disproportionately high um, percentage of um, child protection referrals for children with SEND. Um, uh, in schools um, and for and for all persistent absentees who are out of school, whether irrespective of diagnosis. But focusing on um, SEND, for example, which is where um, Andy Bilson's work had had, um, had focused on, he hasn't published it yet, but early findings are, um, there's been um, a 76% increase in child protection um, where SEND is a factor, 76% increase. So that just shows you the role of the designated safeguarding lead, for example, because that was brought in post-Victoria Climbier, and that was there to try to sort of safeguard children in school and pick up on non-attenders and and um, and um, signs of harm and, and coordinate that. So we have a very risk-averse system happening in terms of um, the sort of scanning of the horizon by, by, by school staff. And speaking to social workers, they've all said that safeguarding is an extremely specialised area. And this idea that safeguarding is everyone's business is a complete fallacy because not everybody is trained or skilled or experienced enough to actually do the job well so we need to retain that expertise and you know and it is compassion focused and it isn't risk averse and it is about supporting families and preventing harm from a supportive place but he within the 76 percent where send is a factor 
of referrals, um, there was also a 25% increase for child in need referrals. Now, if you are a family like mine, the children with SEND and complex health, um, you fall under children with disabilities within children's services, and you're entitled to rather than a section 47 um, child protection um, assessment, which is where, you know, three quarters of the families are ending up, you're entitled to a um, child in needs assessment. Um, and that isn't happening. Another stat that he's uncovered is that 44% of all children and young people with SEND will be referred to children's services for child protection within their lifetime. And that's a massive up, uptick. So, you know, in terms of that sort of surveillance, you know, surveillance, interference and control, it's really worrying. Yeah, thank you. So, so I, I would like to come on in a while to, to think about, like, if this bill goes through unamended in its current form, what would that actually mean in reality for young people in this big bucket, um, for parents and carers like yourself, Naomi, who don't want to send your kids to a mainstream school, and Ellie, um, and also for alternative providers like SMLC. But I'm aware that Ellie, you're going to be having, having to leave in five minutes or so. And so I'd like to just skip ahead a little bit to, to thinking about that, the, where we're at in the process so far. I know that you've been having lots of conversations with lords and ministers and what have you. And I imagine that those conversations are confidential and you know, naming no names and so on. But what's the sense that you get is in terms of like, how likely do you think that this is to go through unamended? Is there much resistance within the lords? I know that you were mentioning this week, you, you mentioned in the House of Lords this week, weren't you, by Natalie Bennett, who was pleading with people to to listen to you and to not find in school as well so can you just give us just as a parting comment like a, a general sense of where you feel that we're up to currently yeah so um i think the house is quite divided but curious and open because the upper house know that um within the lower house as well that there's a majority so whatever they put in place there's the, so I had fascinating conversations, ones that I never thought I'd have um, fascinating um, around um, the sort of art of, 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 um, of presentation of amendments and how you sort of follow the system through from committee to third read to um, report and third reading and all the rest of it and then how it goes into the house and there is a sort of tactical game that gets played you know because of you know the house only sits for a certain amount of hours as well so there's a certain amount of business to get through the houses and you've got to think about how you play your hand and when and what kind of amend you're asking for and why and you've got to think about you know um jenny jones um also from the green party is if you look at her amendments it's all publicly available she's calling for complete strike throughs of whole clauses now now, that is unlikely to go through, but what it will do is it will encourage a debate where the government will then be obliged to take on board that argument, take on board that new evidence and decide whether to rewrite the amendment in their words. You've also got lords who are, who are sort of, you know, adding the word here or adding the bit here. And that is more likely to go through because that's a reasonable um, amendment and it's a softening of the clauses. So there's many ways to sort of skin this cat. Um, and I think anybody who has access to a minister or a lord at the moment, if you lobby and they're wanting to talk to you, try to think about, okay, so how am I gonna play my hand? Because I haven't really held this in mind. The lower house has a majority and 
you've you've got to sort of we all got to think about what amendments can be made so there are hard lines in the sand and there are campaigners who are absolutely going to do everything they can to get swathe struck out but we also need to hold in mind that this is a timed process something will go through where where is the that you know how can we soften x or y and just before i go thinking about you know the future for our children um Another thing that I hadn't held in mind was in terms of the data that's held on young people. I hadn't realised, although I'd heard about it, for example, that children with a social worker um, who are who, who received the support in their family as children with a social worker are placed on um, a, a, a register of risk. And so what we've got a, a, um, at the moment is... Um, for example, it happens with care experienced young people at the point that they fall pregnant and have their own children, a social worker is automatically in the home surveilling, assessing, and um, on the presumption that, you know, it comes from the point place of they need extra support, but it's on the presumption that they may pass on the patterns that they received in early life. And what that means is, you know, it sort of goes back to that prediction of risk. And actually what we see time and time again is children and young people who grow up and who are care experienced and live very happy, successful lives and do not pass on any patterns at all, because that's such a tiny, um, you know, um, uh, uh, in terms of severe harm and neglect, you know, that, that there's very, very small numbers for how that happens. Now, if social work was seen in a slightly different way and if the approach was less about intrusion and assessment and sort of this top-down lens then arguably that could work but I really hadn't hadn't considered when my children were assessed as child in need does this mean at the point that they are adults and they have children themselves are they going to be picked up on a register and a sort of person with a clipboard going to ask to come and see them in their homes and that go also sort of as Ian mentioned it's not only Ofsted that's demanding for the, the powers to um, enter homes without permission, without consent. It's also um, the local government association issued a response to this bill and they are asking for those powers as well. So it's, it's a double whammy. It's not just Ofsted. Um, and, and for me, that the right to enter a home, a bailiff can't even enter a home, you know, without the right paperwork. You know, so it's it's really, really alarming, I think. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us this morning, Ellie. I appreciate you that you need to leave now, but uh, it's been lovely to see you again, albeit in difficult times. But thank you for all the work that you're doing on this as well. Um, Ian, do you want to pick up anything there with regard to the, the, the stuff that we were just talking about, about, about the, the, uh, the conversations that you've been having behind the scenes with people um, in the Lords? Yes. I've, well, I've got a contact with a Lord. I mean, it's nice that the Greens are, are um, pushing for serious big amendments but of course uh, unfortunately the Green Party um, hey, has only a, a couple of Lords involved in this and also um, the big hitters will be coming from the two main parties um, and also the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems have, have been uh, particularly bad on the idea of register i.e they've been in favour of it. Um, uh, just to pick up on, on one of the things that I think is really important that, that Ellie mentioned that doesn't um, figure in people's heads much um, is that the local authority officers who are issuing these school attendance orders. So what they do is to say this, we don't think this child is being educated properly. They must go to this school. So they, they name a school and 
that have to go. Um, and parents have, in some cases, uh, had difficulty getting their kids to school, so they end up in court, and there have been uh, parents imprisoned for their child not going to the school that they're supposed to go to. Uh, and people find that a bit mind-boggling, but it's true. There are dozens around the country, because I've done searches in local newspapers and found you know, evidence of, of parents being in prison. So you've got a 15-year-old girl who won't go to school and mom is in prison. Is that helping that 15-year-old girl? But, it, but we're going to get more of that because um, it's for various reasons. But one of the big issues is that local authority uh, administrators who are doing this are unqualified usually. Uh, they're not qualified teachers. They're making decisions, in fact, that's equivalent to a special needs coordinator in school. Because if you think about it, special needs coordinator, first of all, they know the children well. And secondly, they are um, qualified. And now there is a, actually a postgraduate qualification for special needs coordinators. And you could argue that local authority officers doing this, because first of all, they don't know the children, the child very well. They'll usually be going on paperwork and maybe one or two encounters with the parents and they'll make a judgment uh, right, we're going to issue a school attendance order. And these are people who, who've got uh, no educational qualification. Often, uh, if you look at the job ads, some of them have got, they're just asked to have a, a GCSEs, frankly. And, and that's mind boggling that someone who is not a qualified teacher, for instance, let alone qualified at the level of a special needs coordinator, is making judgments that are the equivalent to a special needs coordinator in a school. So I've asked particular, one particular law that I'm working with to actually try and move that in that uh, section of the bill about local authority powers, because local authorities are going to be given more power to issue school attendance orders without going into the technicalities. They will have more power. Uh, and yet there's no evidence that the people will actually be qualified to do this work. So coming to the implications, as you said, for, for parents, the implications are huge. Um, because of, of, of the, the, the kind of surveillance that Ellie's been talking about um, and the register. So any parent whose child is uh, supposedly electively home educated, um, if they don't go on the register, then, the, then, then the, their penalties, um, which could ultimately end up imprisonment. Um, you know, if they don't pay fines, I think the fines would be over 2000 pounds. So um, huge, implications, huge implications for children who are going to be forced to go back to school in places that are unsafe for them, uh, but they'll be forced to because, you know, a parent, in order to avoid imprisonment, will have to send their child to a place that the, the local authority specifies. Um, uh, and therefore, there's huge implications. There's huge implications for people like myself. Uh, as you know, I was, I was threatened with prosecution the last time at Ofsted came, but we're not an illegal school under the current rules. Under the new rules, uh, for instance, if... The, the, the government's talked about if anything occurs, this is not in the bill, but it's in the uh, documentation about independent education institutions. It says that um, any, any provision between the hours of eight and four, Monday to Friday in term time, prevents the child from going to school and therefore uh, could be classified as an illegal school. So it could well be that a tutor is working with a, for, for an hour in say in the middle of the day with uh, a child who's got an education healthcare plan uh, they would be they would be judged to be a school that one person that tutor would be told you are a school because you're with an, an EHCP person and it's within uh, the normal hours that the child should be at school and therefore in order to stop you seeing the child and get them back into school uh, you would be prosecuted and that will happen if that bill goes through right 
Right, blimey. So, so Naomi, can I ask you, with your clinical psychologist hat on, mm. why is it not a good idea to force children to go <laughs> to school? <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that, James, because that's something I've had to be writing down. Well, it assumes, doesn't it, that, that if we just force them to do it, all will be well and they'll start attending. And, you know, I mean, forcing children to go to school is a is a strategy that is used with school refusers. I mean, that we don't necessarily call it that, but there's a lot of persuasion and pushing children to go into school when they say they don't want to be at school. And what we find is that the more you force people to do something that they don't want to do, the more anxious they become, the more unhappy they become. And either they resist with absolutely tooth and nail, which can mean things like disruptive behavior or all sorts of challenging behavior or they shut down and either way neither of those things are very good for learning so there's this assumption we get this we force this child to go to school and then by definition they'll be learning and that's so so blinkered really and I think that that's the the key of whole this whole thing is the skepticism about how children can learn outside school and yet what I see is that for some children, learning outside school is the only way they can learn. Because many children go to school, go all the way through and don't come out with qualifications at the end. They don't come out having learnt things that they need for their later life. And then actually, when their parents have taken them out of school earlier on or take, sent them to somewhere like SMLC, they start to blossom. They really start to blossom. They start mm. to be able to learn things. And I think our focus should be, the government's focus should be, how can we help every child have opportunities for learning rather than how can we force every child into school because what this this whole bill makes the atmosphere like a kind of hostile atmosphere for home educating families that's how I read it. it and I think what it will do is it will bring huge levels of anxiety into many home educating families I work with these families clinically and I you know I've worked with families who are doing amazing work with very very complex children and they're, they're worried that the local authority will not recognise the work they're doing because it doesn't look like school. They assume The local authority assumes that a child receiving a suitable education should be doing what looks like school. And actually what works for lots of children doesn't look anything like school. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I saw that myself when I worked at SMLC, that, I, that there were young people who I had, I had taught in mainstream schools who were really suffering, really struggling. Some of them with very serious mental health issues and what have you, who really flourished in SMLC, where there's this, where there's this much less coercive environment they're not being made to do stuff against their will and they're allowed to sort of to just to be and to make social connections and to learn what they want to learn and many of the young people who were at SMLC are there because they've been in schools as Ian was mentioning and they they were often it was often bullying more often than not that they would you know that was a huge factor in the fact that they that they were taken out or voted with their feet and took themselves out of schools in the first place um, and so, so now with your having heard the, the clinical psychologist version of you, now as a parent, if if for example the worst was to happen, the worst case scenario, SMLC would be closed down and, and deemed to be an illegal school. What would that mean for you as a parent and of yeah, as a parent of two children who go there? And what would it mean for your children? It would be. A, I think it'd be a tragedy. 
I think it would be a tragedy for all the families because I think what this could do, what this bill could do is restrict the educational options open to home educators. They talk about support, but actually this level of scrutiny doesn't support anyone. What it does is mean that that people won't set up another SMLC, for example, in another place because they'll be like, oh, well, we don't want to risk being, you know, being, being, being viewed with suspicion, really. Um, and I think it would it would just it would limit the opportunities of home educated young people enormously if we weren't able to set up these part time learning settings where children can go. They, they play such an important part. And the irony is that they also enable home educated young people to make relationships with other adults outside the home to be, you know, if your if your real worry is that children aren't very visible. Well, somewhere like SMLC, children are very visible. They're seen by many people. They talk to many other adults. They have all the they, it helps them connect with their wider community. And I think what you'll see happening is that families will start to say things like, well, we can't go out between nine and four because we're worried that someone's going to report us. So it will it could seriously restrict what young people can do. Right. And, and so assuming that, and so assuming that you wouldn't then want to send your children into school, that would place you outside of the law, would it? If it goes through as it is and that you would potentially be fined and could potentially face imprisonment if that if that went on for a number of I, months. I would have to register and then I would have to show that I was providing a suitable education in the eyes of these local education, local authority people who, as Ian said, are unqualified. And I often have have very, very little experience about home education and how it can look different to school. Because there's a, there's a lot of research that shows that children learn at home differently to how they learn at school. Alan Thomas and Harriet Patterson are British researchers who've looked at this process of how children learn in more informal settings. It's there, but people don't know about it. They still assume that school must mean education. So yeah, we would have to register, we'd have to jump through hoops and it would, it would limit what my children can do. No, he's right. There's a lot of research and, and a good example would be uh, reading Harriet Pattinson's uh, doctoral research, which she's, done, she's published, uh, about how uh, children out of school will often learn to read at different ages, for instance. Whereas if you go to school, if, you don't, if you're not reading by the age of six, say, you'll get left behind and you're assumed to be um, a problem child. Whereas uh, what you find in, in, in the home out of school, the otherwise option is that children learn at different ages. And what's interesting is, is you know, all these claims about, you know, school works, but then how come that 50% of the inhabitants of Her Majesty's prisons are functionally illiterate? They've, they've pretty well all been to school, and yet they're functionally illiterate. And we, we've, I've worked with, uh, had students come to us, 14, 15 year olds who've been to school right through from the age of four and can't read and write properly. Um, now, well, uh, you know, it, it just, just happens, but they can learn in an environment where they've got the individual support, where they can go at their own pace and work in their own way. Um, so the assumptions that the classroom is the only place to learn are bizarre and clearly they're, they're upheld by the figures. Uh, nationally, well, the figures vary between whether it's six and nine, between six and nine million people, adults, functionally illiterate, but that's huge. And nearly all of those have been to school. 99% of them would have been to school and, and, and they're functionally illiterate. Now, what, of course, why uh, people are in prison with that? Because if they, if they had been literate, they wouldn't be in prison for most of them. Because what do you do if you're illiterate? Uh, well, drug dealing and stealing and also, I mean, how do you have a proper job? Uh, how do you learn? How do you live? Well, you live by being outside the law and end up in prison. Um, it's outrageous. And, and the claims that are made for schooling are outrageous. 
and, and one of the things is that we tracked, you know, we've had the research done of our next students, um, which has shown them in, in being successful. And as, as Nelly mentioned, a lot of it is to do with things like they've learned to deal with other people. All the reports by employers for the last 30 years say people coming out of education system are not good in teams, they're not socially skilled, they're not good at self-managing, taking charge of their own lives, they're not self-disciplined, they're not, they're not creative uh, because school knocks creativity out of them. Um, and yet the research on our ex-students has shown that they actually, um, they comment on the fact that they've learned to get on with people and that's made help them or they've gone to university and said well we can self-manage and a lot of other people who've been through school find university a problem whereas we don't because we're just used to the fact that we we know how to manage our own learning so we get on with it um so there is evidence as as Naomi said there's lots of research done on uh not just home education children but but generally about learning and about how people learn more effectively huge huge literature um which is ignored because people in local authorities don't know this because why would they? they they're, they're administrators yeah that's the thing like you like the word ignored i always just wrote down the word ignorance it seems like it's 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 an, an ignorance or a lack of a lack of knowledge about what happens within this within this um, umbrella of home education i don't i think that if people haven't had personal lived experience of it and that's probably the majority of people they they don't know about it and maybe maybe they it's sort of a, it's a natural human inclination to to be suspicious and to think why are you keeping your kid at home you know what's wrong with you what's going on here um and so in the show notes are linked to various places some of that the research that you mentioned around reading uh, both of your books are brilliant resources self-managed learning and the new educational paradigm and changing our minds both brilliant books brilliant very readable accounts of of what it's like within this umbrella and and how what an act of vandalism it would be to to close down somewhere like smlc or summerhill or you know these other like sudbury type schools where there's, there's amazing work happening and it's been happening for for years and it's it's providing such a, an invaluable service to society for the kids who who the, the square pegs who aren't able to 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 flourish in schools for, for whatever myriad reasons that happens. You're providing an incredible sort of, I don't want to use the word mopping up, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like, it's providing this incredible service for, for the young people who don't fit in the system to be able to have something that nourishes them and that enables them to flourish. And it just seems like it would be such an act of vandalism to, to close that down, couched in, in, in terms, as you say, Naomi, that this is somehow supporting young people and actually it's severely restricting their, their options and is going to increase the problems in their lives and not decrease them. Mm. Do you want to come in there, Naomi? Yeah, and I just wanted to pick up because the reading research is such a good example that Harriet Paston's research shows that young people out of school learn to read between the ages of two and 14 without it having the implications that it does for them later in school. So. So an local authority person coming in with the, the, the mindset that everybody, most people in society have because we went to school and at school we're taught school is the way to learn. They see, say, an eight year old who can't read and they say not a suitable education mm. because that's their mindset. Because in school, a child who is eight and not reading think problems. It's so common for a home educating child not to be reading at eight. Both of my children were not reading at eight. They learned to read later and then they learned to read quite quickly. They learned to read because they wanted to do it and they now read for pleasure, which, you know, and I don't in any way think that their reading will be, that their reading won't hold them back in later life. 
because they're competent readers. And it, there's just no understanding of how within home education that different process of child development. It's one of the things I first noticed as a psychologist that most of what we know about child development is child development in the context of school. We assume that children go through these particular stages because at school we make them go through these stages. But actually when we have children out of school, for example, it's not that uncommon for a child to be playing for way longer than a child in school is allowed to play, to want to spend all their time in play. And then they get to an age and suddenly they're like, oh, you know what? I'm really interested in maths and trigonometry. And I mean, one of the most amazing things for me, actually, one of the surprising, most surprising things for me was people often say, well, children won't do these things unless we make them do them. But you see examples, Ian will have loads of examples, and I have examples of young people choosing to do all sorts of unexpected things without being made to do them. My son, has chosen to do handwriting. He really, really wants to improve his handwriting. Handwriting is something that's always been difficult for him. He's got, you know, he, he, that's just a real, it's been a struggle for him. And he was just like, right, I'm gonna improve my handwriting. He sits down every day and practices his handwriting for 20 minutes, no input from me whatsoever. It's because he wants to improve his handwriting. And that's what we see with our young people. And I think that the local authorities just aren't qualified to assess how that kind of education works because it looks so different. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, so, so is there anything else within this, within this sort of, um, what, what the consequences of this, if this bill passes, what does it mean? We've heard quite a bit for young people, for parents and carers, for places like SMLC. Is there anything else that, you see, that you'd like to add to this about the, the, the concerns that if this, if this goes through, as, as it currently stands, how this will play out for young people and their families? I think one of the things is, is, is um, implications for schools who have not, uh, perhaps not clocked anything, because, for instance, there'll be more kids being pushed onto uh, the school role that don't want to be there. So actually, the implications for teachers in the classroom where um, a, a someone with a ADHD or, I mean, the, 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 the figures are for neurodiversity about 25% the population neurodiverse. That's not just autism, but dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyspraxia, if you go through it. Um, and uh, quite a lot, it's back to square peg and at least uh, people, you know, that, that um, teachers are actually going to be hugely inconvenienced by, uh, to say that, I mean, inconvenience would probably be a mild, <laughs> they, that, that, and we know that the, the, the research is showing that lots of teachers want to leave teaching because it's become more and more mechanized that we have, you know, there's this nonsense about a broad and balanced curriculum. Well, it's not true. Uh, in schools, it's become narrower. It's only academic subjects that are accepted. And yet the biggest growth in the economy in the last 10 years has been in the digital and creative sectors. And the government's own figures show that, that, that the department that's in charge of that shows those figures. And, the, and clearly the people in the Department for Education don't read uh, government figures from another department, a fairly normal siloed effect of the civil service, but uh, it's horrifying. Um, and so the creative subjects are being ditched. Um, I'm a dancer, you know, but, uh, and dance has, got, has gone in, in most schools. Not interesting, interesting in the private sector, um, you know, the drama's gone, and yet Eton has two theatres. Um, you know, uh, who, who's being stupid here? Um, that we have this very narrow curriculum, which is not broad and not balanced, and, and the whole notion that there is this objective curriculum that schools have. So why is it there's a curriculum in Scotland, another one in Wales, another one in England, all of which are different? 
um, are Welsh kids, Scottish kids and English kids all very different? So a Welsh child in, in England uh, would have to do the English curriculum, and uh, whereas a Welsh child in England who's not in school might decide to learn Welsh, but you can't do that in an English school. Uh, and they might be going back to Wales and they want to know Welsh, but they, they're not allowed to. I mean, it, you, you could a million different examples of the stupidity of the, the current curriculum. And many teachers are seeing it and saying we want out, you know, that, that we have this very mechanised situation in the classroom. And it's going to get worse if this bill becomes an act and it doesn't get amended. It will definitely become worse for schools. Right. Thank you. That's a, that's an interesting point that, I, that, yeah, I don't think many people have really, have really clocked that. As you say, so, so what can people do to help if they if, if people are listening to this and they agree with us that this is profoundly concerning, what can people do to to help and where where so because as Ellie said before, it is quite a time limited situation, isn't it? Is it something like early June when this thing when when there's a, there's an end on this window of, of debate? Well, it would be late June, quite possibly, but you never know with a committee stage apparently because it's a bit open ended. Um, and of course, then it's when it's time to go into the House of Commons, and that's when the rubber hits the road, really. Um, I think they've been very clever to put it in the Lords first. Um, but I think it's therefore people uh, establishing a relationship with their MP is just absolutely crucial. Um, and, and for all parents. Can you explain that? Why is it clever to put it in the Lords first? Is it because then the Lords can't comment on whatever happens in the Commons? Yeah, that's one thing. And also, it, uh, it allows the notion that we've had a proper expiration. Um, and also it's easier for the Commons then to, to ditch any amendments they don't like, uh, because it doesn't then, you know, I mean, they can, they can disregard whatever the Lords come up with. As you know, event, uh, eventually Commons is the superior house and therefore um, whatever the Commons says goes if, if, if the Lords disagree with them. So, and I think it also has kept it away from MPs during a, a tricky time in the House of Commons um, and I think that um, the, the, the atmosphere in the Commons as you know because of the political situation and you know Prime Minister situation etc yeah it's pretty messy and, uh, and and I think that that's kind of a clever ploy I think for various reasons so if you've not already talked to a Lord then you may be too late but but not necessarily, um, because there's still um, the committee stage that's going to start, I believe, next week. Um, so there's still opportunities for, for, for people to, to uh, comment on amendments. Mm. Um, but MPs, it's, it's establishing a relationship with an MP, ideally, um, so that, that when it comes into the Commons, um, it's, they're known and they know what the issues are. I think that we're reliant, frankly, on some rebels um but given that there are schisms within the existing parties who knows but um we are reliant given the majority that the government's got um on people who are prepared to say i'm not going to, to back this um and that's going to be quite tricky but i think there are there are a number of mps that we know have got a more libertarian stance if you like that they they see this creeping um power of the state um as as uh, something that is worrisome yeah um and that, that and that backbench mps have less power of course in this situation you know it becomes more focused because basically it's saying one person it's not just the state it's saying the secretary of state for education has this power uh unlimited to make these changes to judge oh well we'll have this rather than that 
and regulations because they're not because it's allowing him to make these changes himself rather than being uh, put in the act and that is really dangerous and there will be MPs who understand that yeah that's an interesting point isn't it is it is it true to say that the SMLC when there was a conservative council in Brighton that SMLC was funded at that time and it was when it when there was a Labour and a Green Council that funding was cut and they, they were much yeah. more like, interested in like every kid should go to their local school yeah, yeah, that's precisely it. Yeah, right. And so we, 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 it was a government scheme that we were able to use to get fees paid, and then um, that was changed by the government. And when the scheme was changed to a different methodology without boring people with it, then the Green Party and the Labour Party joined forces to um, say you know, no more. Um, and and it was the argument that that people should be going to their local school. And, and a community-based charity like ourselves was categorised by some of the uh, councillors as a private institution. So, you know, it's almost like we're like Eton or something, which couldn't be further from the truth since the, in, in the Stockbridge Learning College, we, you know, we don't have a curriculum, we don't have formal classrooms, we don't do any of the things that, that would be part of the private education sector. But of course, it is convenient. So. The, the problem in, 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 in politics is that people, well, people, ordinary people don't recognise that for, for someone in, in politics as a full-time post especially, the main issue they've got is to, is to be in power. So it, it's all about power and the current Secretary of State clearly sees that. Um, but there are other MPs who would, would I think, um, be worried about that power being centralised. So I think you have to play that card um, about where the power lies. Um, because that is one of the, the, the things that is a guiding light for most politicians. Right, right, thank you. Um, is there anything that you'd like to, to add there, Naomi? We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up soon. Yeah, I think I what I'd just like to add is that I think many people will think, oh, this won't affect me. And actually, I think it affects everybody. And, um, you know, we, again, we have this, lots of people have the assumption that, that, that they'll never be in the situation of having a child who can't attend school or who is very, very unhappy at school, that they'll never be in the position to make that choice. But most people who are in that position didn't set out at the beginning to be there. So this absolutely affects everybody. It affects everybody who's has a child, has a grandchild, has a niece or nephew, because many, many children at some point, school isn't working for them and their parents want to make a different choice. And this is limiting that choice and it's restricting everybody's civil liberties. And I think that's a really serious issue. Yeah. And the stuff about data is that's just outrageous, isn't it? And, and that's something that you would think, you know, it's such a hot issue, protection of data. It seems like that's just not in any way okay and that you were talking about these registers ian which is just going to open up a world of of opportunity for people with nefarious plans to uh to to get personal data on people on vulnerable people often it's just it's just so much that needs to be uh, fixed about this well thank you both hugely for um for sharing your time and your thoughts and your expertise in this pressing urgent area um th this will come out later today i'm gonna i'm gonna um release it Toot sweet. Um, so thank you both hugely. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're doing this. Uh, it's really important. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.